Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. I have a theory that time actually speeds up the older you get. It's kind of similar to the value of a dollar over the last 50 years. Just like one dollar buys you far less than it did back in 1972, the value of time seems to be less than when I was growing up. I just don't know if a minute is really as long as it was when I was 10 years old. I mean, I I have my doubts. Instead of lasting a full 60 seconds, um, one minute now feels like about, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, An hour seemed like an hour when I was 15, right? A year seemed like a year back then. And now a full year feels like, well, about three or four months instead. And the older I get, the more time seems to speed up. Can anybody here relate to, with, with me about that? All right, a few of you out there are, are in the same boat. The longer we live, the shorter time seems. And if I'm fortunate enough to reach the age of 85, which is 20 years from now, I expect a full year to feel like about a week. Okay? The brevity of life is um, often amplified by an uncomfortable sense that we just haven't accomplished very much. Um, Even people that you might consider to be very successful in life often confess to feelings that they've actually accomplished very little. We know that as Christians, what truly matters uh, to God by his grace is different than what matters to people that don't have a relationship with the Lord. I mean, we we know that God could care less about what salary bracket we're in or what sort of house we live in or who thinks we're important and why. God cares instead about whether we're growing and enjoying our relationship with him more every day Uh, God cares about whether we're becoming more like Jesus every day. God cares about whether we're using the gifts and the abilities that he's given us to advance his work in this world. Everything else is is unimportant to him. I'm getting an echo here. Is that out there as well? Do I need to use the other mic, Mark, or just stay with this one? Okay. If you knew today that this was the last day of your life, could you say, I'm, I've become completely the person that God wants me to become? I've accomplished everything that God wants me to do. I mean, wouldn't honesty compel us to stay instead? Uh, you know, there was that person that I should have helped, but I didn't. Uh, there was that other person that I, I, I could have spoken to about Jesus, but I, I didn't do it. There are mistakes that I've made. There's opportunities that I've missed. There's, there's sins that I've committed. 
not one person here today or, or even those listening online today, young, middle-aged, elderly, can say, I've, I've, I've become completely the person that God wants me to become. I've accomplished everything God wants me to do. Jesus could. Jesus could say that. Jesus is the one and only human being who accomplished everything God wanted him to do. He's the only person who could say at the end of life, mission accomplished. And know that statement was absolutely true and correct before God. Well, we are nearing the end of our Lenten study of several statements that Jesus made over the six hours he hung on the cross, dying for our sins. Crosswords. Jesus' statements before he died is the title of this series of messages leading up to and including Easter Sunday. Uh, let's read the statement that we want to reflect on today. It's found in the Gospel of John the uh, 19th chapter, and um, it's just a few verses, beginning at verse 28 and reading through verse 30. So find it in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, pull out one of those Blue Pew Bibles, turn to the page up there on the screen, and follow along. P put your eyes on God's Word in whatever form you have it today, and follow along as I read. John 19, beginning at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had, had now been finished and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, that was another statement of Jesus that we looked at a few weeks ago, not the one we're talking about today. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink... Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Let's call that the word of triumph, the word of triumph. You know, it's interesting. John was the only one of the four gospel writers who told us that Jesus made that statement. Matthew and Mark mentioned that Jesus gave a great shout just before he died, but only John recorded Jesus' actual words. It is finished. On the one hand, uh, the meaning of Jesus' words seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? I mean, he was expressing relief at the, at the nearness of death and, and an end to the tremendous pain and suffering that he'd endured. On the other hand... There's more than just relief here. There's much more. The full impact of it is finished meant mission accomplished. So I want us to, I want us to ask and then answer two questions as we discern a little bit more about the meaning of Jesus' word of triumph. Here's the first question. What was finished? What, in fact, was finished? Did Jesus uh, refer to the fact that his physical life was about to end? Well, I think that was part of it. But he meant much more than that. 
You know, the word for finished there meant more than just coming to the end of something. Uh, that word means to carry out and fulfill a task given to you by somebody else. It meant to complete an assignment. It meant to accomplish a mission. And, and we can find Jesus's awareness of his task, his assignment, his mission everywhere in the Gospels. For example, Jesus said to his father in prayer, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work completing the work you gave me to do. Well, what work was Jesus referring to? Was it healing people or performing miracles, teaching, preaching, revealing God's power? Well, absolutely all of that. But Jesus' work meant far more than even all those wonderful acts and activities. The Bible clearly teaches that the primary purpose of Jesus' work was to reconcile you and me with God, his Father. And reconciliation required Jesus' death. Now, I realize that that may sound ridiculous and even kind of barbaric to uh, some people, but that's because we don't consider human sinfulness to be the big problem that God does. And God clearly states in his, in his word, his eternal attitude toward human sin. The Bible says the person who sins is the one who will die. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. And so written into the spiritual structure of the universe that God created long before human beings arrived on the scene was the spiritual law that the penalty for any and all sin is death, eternal separation from God. And if you dislike or you disagree with that bedrock truth, uh, please check out the Bible for yourself. Uh, it's not my opinion, which... which uh, matters very little anyway. Uh, it's, it's what Scripture teaches, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. But thank God that's not all that the Bible teaches. Amen? God is loving. He cares for human beings, his creation deeply, passionately, completely. So how could he show his love but still do justice to our sin at the same time? It was our problem, but only God could solve it. And the Bible's message is that he did solve it in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus took upon himself your sin, and then uh, God judged that sin uh, and mine in Jesus. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus became our substitute on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus died in our place. And folks, any other explanation of what Jesus did at the cross destroys the significance of it. It's absolutely imperative that we hold on to this. Uh, because justice was done to your sin and mine, God now extends to us the offer of eternal reconciliation with him. Our sins are forgiven. We, we get a new sense of intimate connection with God as our father. We get the peace and the joy that, that goes with that reconciliation. The Holy Spirit enters our spirit 
to dwell there. We, we receive the assurance of an eternal home in heaven. And, and all that amazing stuff that God gives to us is summed up in one Bible word, grace. Grace. And most of you probably already know this helpful little acronym. I love it. Grace is what? God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. All that God is and all that God offers becomes available to you and to me through the sacrificial love of Jesus at the cross. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace. You know, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, um, the people of Israel were commanded by God to put the blood of a slain lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death passed over them. It was during the whole uh, Exodus delivery out of, out of Egypt. And inside, the members of each family ate a, a quick meal in anticipation of their departure from slavery in Egypt. And the Passover feast became one of the most important yearly uh, spiritual events the people of Israel observed. And it, commem it commemorated God's mighty deliverance, his salvation from Egypt. And the traditional Passover feast in includes drinking from four different cups of wine as a part of the meal. And one cup is called the cup of redemption, which symbolized uh, God's uh, saving love for Israel. And... As the family drinks from this cup, the head of the family says solemnly, finished, completed, accomplished. And it's a reminder that, that God's work of miraculous deliverance has been achieved. And this was what Jesus was saying moments before he died. His task was finished. The work of providing salvation was complete. The mission of making it possible for human beings to be reconciled back to God, his Father, it was accomplished. And the Passover feast actually points back both to the Exodus and to the cross of Jesus. The, this massive sin problem has been solved. Payment in full has been made. And both God's justice and his love have been equally upheld. Finished, completed, accomplished. And the rest of verse 30 there in John 19 seems almost anticlimactic, doesn't it? Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. And the word released or gave up there meant more than just, more than just dying physically. The word is often associated with kind of settling back on a pillow to rest. It meant Jesus yielded up his life willingly out of his great love for the Father and for us. Folks, Jesus' death was not an accident, was not a defeat, and it was not a failure. It was and it is and it always will be the absolute triumph of God. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. It was far more than, than relief that his pain and suffering was coming to an end. It was and always will be a shout of triumph. You know, here's something kind of ironic. When famous people die tragically, doesn't it seem like their influence and impact becomes 
greater sometimes than it was when they were living? I mean, would, would John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King Jr. be as respected or immortalized today if they had not been assassinated? I don't think so. Somehow dying tragically enhanced their influence. Here's another example. When Abraham Lincoln was shot and, and killed by John Wilkes Booth, Edwin Stanton was his secretary of war. And historians tell us that Stanton had little respect for Lincoln. He thought Lincoln was rude, uncultured. He made no effort to hide his contempt for the president. But he looked down on Lincoln's lifeless body on that sad day, and Edwin Stanton was heard to say, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. And it's been suggested that, that Jesus was never more majestic, never more triumphant than he was in death. The Bible described one hardened, cynical soldier at the cross that day who'd seen a lot of people die. When the Roman soldier who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. And the cross has, you know, it has the same effect on people today. Somehow the cross and the death of Jesus draws people to him far more than even his life, his deeds, his words. And in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, Jesus himself recognized the power of the cross, because this is what he said. He said, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes um, in him will have eternal life. Jesus knew that this would draw people to him. There's a painting that depicts a pivotal moment during World War I. It, um, it, it's the picture of an engineer repairing a telephone line that was essential to the communication ability of the army. And he's just completed that hookup when he's fatally shot. And there's a one-word title for that painting. Through. Through. The man had given his life so that the essential message could get through. And folks, that's what Jesus did. He died so that God's essential message of love and grace and forgiveness could get through to you and me. And beyond the blood and the sweat and the tears of the cross, we can see the glory and the majesty of God himself. Finished, completed, accomplished. What was finished? You know, actually... That first question can't be fully answered until we answer a second question. You know what that is? What was started? What was started? Jesus said, it is finished. But you know, Jesus' work didn't, didn't come to an end at the cross that day. In another sense, his work really just began there. Here, here's an analogy. Um, a wedding ceremony begins a marriage, yes? And when the wedding itself is over, you know, certain things are finished and done and accomplished and completed. Vows are exchanged and certificates are signed and cake is eaten. It's my favorite part. 
bride and groom are congratulated. Uh, now, now, something new starts the marriage relationship itself. Yeah. And yes, yeah, something is indeed finished the wedding ceremony. But the conclusion of the ceremony means something else begins or starts. It's the marriage. And enduring and dying on the cross was an essential act that Jesus successfully accomplished and completed. Something was indeed finished, but something else was started. And it comes down to the difference between the work of the cross for me and the work of the cross in me. Let's talk about that a little bit. When Jesus died, the work of the cross for me was finished and done. It's in the past. My salvation was purchased back then. Forgiveness of my sins was secured back then. Reconciliation with God was made possible back then. But the work of the cross in me why, that just got started. The effect of, of, of Jesus' cross continues on, and the work and the mission of, of Jesus continues on into the present and into the future. So here's a question that, that we need to ask ourselves this Lenten season as we get closer and closer now to Palm Sunday, next Sunday, and then Good Friday and Easter Day. Having experienced the work of the cross for me, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, am I really experiencing the work of the cross in me, in my present, in my future? Well, the obvious question is, what does the work of the cross in me look like? You know, years ago, I read a book um, where the author expressed something that I, I believe answers that question very well. First, the work of the cross in you makes it possible for you to be with Jesus now in a spiritual sense, to be with Jesus now. I love the verse that tells us what Jesus did regarding the 12 disciples. This was like day one. He approached he appointed 12 that they might be what? With him. Oh, don't, don't overlook that. Very important. Very important. You know, folks, sometimes we can get so focused on being like Jesus, which is all that character stuff, um, or trying to do things for Jesus in terms of service or ministry that we fail to appreciate fully the privilege of simply being able to be with Jesus spiritually. And we are called first and foremost to enjoy and delight in him and having a relationship with him every day. I mean, there's nothing more wonderful than simply being with Jesus spiritually. A wonderful statement puts it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And someone has made this subtle but significant change to that statement, which I like even more. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, simply being with Jesus. 
You see, most of the time, folks, and this happens to all of us, we, we can tend to make our relationship with God a matter of duty rather than joy. And, and we make it all about being as good as we possibly can and, and doing our religious duty every day. And the result of all that can be that our daily lives, and, fo and folks, even sometimes our worship on Sundays, can take on sort of an unattractive dullness, stiffness, um, lifelessness that, that doesn't honor God in the least. The, the Bible says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Do you delight in the Lord? Um, do you enjoy God? Really? The Bible also says, you will show me the way of life, grant to me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Do, do you find pleasure in being with God today? Is, is being with Jesus something that you want to do or something that you feel like it's a duty to do? Jesus said, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Folks, don't, don't miss the significance of what Jesus said. Their eternal life isn't found only in a place called heaven. It's not just about living forever and ever. According to Jesus, eternal life is about a relationship with a person. Eternal life is about knowing God the Father, and his son, Jesus. And the greatest, the greatest result of the cross is the fact that we get to know God now. Not just know about God, but we get to know God personally and experientially. And that's a result that, that, that just never has an end to it. You will never find yourself saying, well, now I know everything there is to know about God. I'm done now. Let's move on to whatever comes next. Won't happen. Not ever. So first, the work of the cross in you makes it possible for you and me to be with Jesus right now. Second, the work of the cross in you makes it possible to be like Jesus right now. You see, that, that is the character stuff, and it's very important for sure. We're talking about this lifelong process whereby you gradually begin to resemble the Lord himself in your attitudes, in your actions, in how you treat other people, in, in everything that has to do with life. And, and the Bible gives us many examples of what being like Jesus looks like. I guess maybe the most definitive list is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you want just a, a quick summary of what it's like to be like Jesus, that's probably the best list. It's all right there. But listen to me, don't get the cart before the horse. Meaning what? If you focus first on becoming like Jesus but you never get around to enjoying him and you neglect being with him, you'll just turn becoming like Jesus into a duty and a drudgery. Because the more you are with Jesus right now, 
the more we want to become like Jesus. So the work of the cross in you makes it possible to be with Jesus right now. Then it makes it possible for you and me to be like Jesus right now. And third, the work of the cross in you makes it possible to be for Jesus right now. And this is the, this is the serving the Lord piece. This is finding, you know, that place of ministry. It might be inside the church. It might be out in the community. And, and, and you do it with all your heart out of gratitude because of what Jesus means to you and what he's done for you. This is the part where it's about contributing in time and talent and tithe and treasure to help build up the kingdom of God. It has everything to do with the spiritual gifts and how you put them at Jesus' disposal day in and day out. Again, careful, don't get the cart before the horse. I've seen a lot of people want to rush out and do stuff for Jesus, and they never develop that witness with Jesus. And if you focus first on just getting busy for Jesus, but you don't find ways to delight in him and experience life with him on a daily basis, you'll run out of spiritual steam in serving him for very long. Because the more you are with Jesus, the more you'll want to be for Jesus. You know, folks, here, here's what I know about myself. I know for sure that I still live with only a superficial awareness of the abundance, the largeness, the unbelievable bigness of what, of what is being offered to me now and today because of what Jesus achieved on the cross back then in the past. I mean, so much got started on that hill outside Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. And God wants to give us so much more of himself, and yet so often our capacity for him can be so miserably small. And I can just sense that there's a depth of joy that I haven't, I haven't touched yet myself. There's a well of peace that I haven't experienced yet. There's a, there's a wealth of meaning I haven't entered into yet. There is ministry and service I haven't explored yet. There's fulfillment I haven't dreamed of yet that is the unclaimed legacy of the cross in my own life. What about you? Jesus died on the cross so that you could be with him now, so that you could be like him now, and so that you could be for him now. And that is the work of the cross in you and in me. And that's what was started when Jesus said, it is finished. It was originally known as the Barberini vase. It's considered to be a artistic masterpiece. It's a vase made out of glass back in the first century, Roman. It's made out of a deep blue-violet glass, and then there is an opaque white glass that was attached to it as well. And um, eventually it came into the possession of the Duke of Portland, a member of uh, the English nobility. And... Um, from then on, it became known as the Portland vase. 
And uh, the Duke of Portland lent it to the British Museum for display in 1810. Now, as the story goes, the Duke had an employee with whom he had a falling out. And this employee was fired. And the employee was angry at the Duke for how he was treated and, and for what happened. And so he, um, he wanted... He wanted to, to, to strike back at the Duke and, and bring um, some pain and misery to him and to his family. And his plot focused on the Portland Vase. He went to London. He went to the British Museum. He found the room where the vase was displayed. He waited until everybody had left the room there were no employees of the museum in the room. He was completely alone. And he went and he took that vase and he smashed it on the ground. And the crash resounded through the entire museum. Employees came running. The man who committed this vandalism was taken into custody. And whether he did it as an act of vengeance or whatever against the, the duke, um, is a little bit sketchy, but the Portland vase was definitely vandalized this man, or by this man in, in 1845. Well, the Portland vase was now in over 150 different pieces all over the floor of that room in the museum. And shocked and saddened the... the um, um, museum employees carefully swept up all of those pieces and, and, and treated them as carefully as possible. But frankly, it, it, looked, it looked like the Portland vase was beyond any hope of restoration. It seemed that way. But over a period of several years, um, Craftsmen with incredible skill and endless patience were able to find where all of those 150 different pieces fit into that vase. And they were able, in a, almost a miraculous way, to restore it so that if you go to London today and you go to the British Museum, you can see the Portland vase still there with just some faint lines of how it's been restored miraculously. You know, folks, Satan was and is like that vandal. Because of our sin, it's as if he took humanity, God's artistic masterpiece, and he smashed us to pieces. Thousands of pieces. And any kind of restoration to God's original design, it seemed, seemed hopeless. But Jesus is a master craftsman. And he's been putting back those pieces together in your life and in my life because of what he did on the cross. And we're being restored, even as we speak this morning. Now, here's one difference, though, between the Portland vase and you and me. 
as miraculous as that restoration has been, the Portland vase is never going to be as perfect as it was in its original condition. But it's different with you and me. As God restores us, the promises that we're going to reach a level of perfected beauty that only eternity itself will reveal. Jesus said, it is finished. It's his word of triumph. What was finished? The work of the cross for me. What was started? The work of the cross in me. Jesus wants to be with me now. Jesus wants to be with you now. Jesus wants to make you like him and me like him. And Jesus wants us to be for him. The question that I want to ask you as we close, actually there's two questions. Have you personally ever experienced the work of the cross for you? Um, have you ever asked God to forgive you of your sins? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus and asked him to become your Lord and your Savior? Has that ever happened for you? That's the work of the cross for you. Have you ever experienced that? Now, I know, I know that most of us here in this room have experienced that. Praise God, yes? Yeah. I mean, that's probably why we're here this morning, Right? Praise God for that. That's wonderful. But here's the question that I want to ask you and me. Are you experiencing the work of the cross in you? The work of the cross in you. Are you experiencing at a greater level what it means to be with Jesus? To be like Jesus? To be for Jesus? It is finished. Let's pray. tuning into the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.